Welcome to Bookish Memories. Books are special. They can be the written words of your joy or the comforting hug for your sorrows. So put on your reading glasses, make yourself a nice mug of tea, and come join me down my memory lane full of books. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Bookish Memories. This will be the wrapping episode of 2022, but there will be short specials coming up next week, and so please do look forward to that. So let's get straight into the book I'm talking about this week. It is The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. I actually first, like the perks of being a wallflower, I first knew about this novel through the film adaptation. So there was this bookshop near my middle school and I used to frequent it with my friends after school. And then I saw the... So there would be like, as any of the bookshops, there would be like recommendation sections. I saw The Fault in Our Stars in that section and I saw that the film meditation was coming out and so I decided to just flip through it to get a glimpse of what the novel was about and then I accidentally saw the spoilers like I accidentally saw the ending of the book like the major major plot of the book of the book and I was like okay fine I'm still I was still going like I was like okay, fine, but I'm still going to watch the film. So I asked my parents, like, back at the time, I usually watch the... I usually go to the cinemas with my parents because it was still not a habit of mine to watch films with with my friends. I asked my parents to take me to the cinema to watch the film, but when my mum saw the poster of the film, she kind of like confirm with me whether I truly wanted to watch the film because a poster featured Hazel and Augustus, the two main characters of the story and Hazel's got uh, a cannula in her nose that would uh, provide her with oxygen. She took that as a sign that that was going to be a sad film And so she said to me, well, do you really want to watch this film? Because I got a feeling that this girl is going to die. But then, as I said, I accidentally saw the the ending of the book at the bookshop. And I said, yeah, sure, sure. I, I really wanted to watch this. This seemed like a really interesting one. But what I didn't tell her was that it was the guy that would die at the end. <laughs> I don't know if it was cruel or kind of me to do that, but I kept that as a secret. And so when we came out of cinema, when the film ended, we were both like, I, I knew what was going to happen, but I still cried so much. Like when we came out of cinema, my mom's eyes were so red and my, my nose were, were like, block because I was crying too much. But I think a lot of film adaptations of novels, of books, they're just they just kind of serve as the 
window or introduction into the novels themselves, because for most occasions, like eighty percent or even ninety percent, I can confidently say that the book is going to be better than the adaptation, whether it be a series or a film. After reading *The Fault in Our Stars*, it immediately became my favorite favorite novel. I do have the tendency to say like the last thing that I watched or read to be my favorite, but the but *The Fault in Our Stars* is special in the sense that it stayed on the very top for a very very long time, no matter what I read afterwards, because it's just. So different from the books that I've read up until that point in my life. The Perks of Being the Wallflower is a bit similar to this one, but this this has got more philosophical thoughts into it. Because the author John Green, I think he took philosophy at university as well. So I guess that is the reason why this book contains so much.、Um, Topics surrounding deeper meaning of life, and that it also opened up my interests and and serves a kind of window into understanding more philosophy theories. In this book, the main character Hazel, she's got thyroid cancer, and then Augusta, she's also got another kind of cancer, and that's why they. They meet each other because they are going to this support group for kids with cancer, and they're both teenagers. So it's really interesting that I would, when I first read it, I was younger than them, and now that I'm way older than them, I'm still reading it. And that's the reason why I love this book so much because every single time, I can still find new things to. Ponder upon and be excited about when I read this book. Literally, like when I was preparing for this episode, I discovered new points and understood a little more about the things that I didn't understand. I think I must have reread this book more than ten times now. Just so you know how much I love this book, I have to admit that I was a I was kind of reluctant to share this book with my friends when I was younger, and a quote from this book perfectly sums up the way I was reluctant to sh- share this book with my friends. My favorite book, by wide margin, was an imperial affliction, but I didn't like to tell people about it. Sometimes you read a book and it fills you with this weird evangelical zeal, and you become convinced that the shattered world will never be put back together unless and until all living humans read the book. And then there are books like *An Imperial Affliction*, which you can't tell people about—books so special and rare and yours that advertising your affection feels like a betrayal. The way Hazel described the letter was exactly how I felt about this book. It wasn't even like I had the same disease. I don't have cancer, and it wasn't like I suffered the same as them. It was just so special to me in an unexplainable way that I felt 
sharing this book would be like giving up something really intrinsical or like part of yourself, even if you can put it that way. But then, as I grew older, I started to share this book with other people simply because I want to discuss it with them. I want to know more. I want to understand the things I do not understand. I want to hear different perspectives. I want to hear people's or other interpretations of this book, and that's kind of why I'm sharing it. With you today, because while I reread this book, there were still some parts that I don't necessarily understand, and I hope that through throwing this out loud, and maybe you can give me some kind of、uh, feedback, or you can give me, you can tell me your opinion, and that would be really wonderful. Another sign that I love this book so much. It's the fact that I own five different copies of it. I actually got this、um, inspiration of collecting different copies of the same book from an exhibition. Like I went to this exhibition of of a little prince, and then the and then there was a section where there was a huge display of of the little prince. In I think more than twenty languages, and then the、uh, the card of of that section said that the person loved the little prince so much that whenever he visited a different country, he would go to after getting out of the airport, he would go directly to a local bookshop to purchase an edition of the little prince. And so after seeing that, I thought, okay, my favorite book is *The Fault in Our Stars*. I got to have different copies of it, and so my most battered copy, and the pages are all kind of yellow right now, is the one I've got with me the longest. It was, it is a movie tied in version that I got directly after watching the film. And the four other editions that I've got, I don't exactly remember the order I get them, but there is the Mandarin Chinese translated edition of the book. Another edition I have with me is the original copy because, like I said, the first edition I've got is a movie tied in, so the cover of it is the movie poster. But I just want really wanted an original version. And so this one just got like a blue background, and then two two different kind of clouds that has a black cloud with the title of the book, and then another white cloud with、uh, the author's name on it. And I also really like the way it is like the font is in written in like chalk style, the like how you would write it on a blackboard. And then another edition I've got is a. Pocket edition, so it is smaller than the size of my hand. When I saw this edition come out, I think in twenty eighteen, I just imme- immediately thought, "Oh, that's great! I could, I could just carry this book with me wherever I go, and I could read it whenever I want to." And lastly, my most precious edition is. A hardcover first edition, 
signed copy from Goldsworn Books in London. So my family and I we visited London in 2018 in the summer, and I found out about there's this um, street for the secondhand bookshops in in London. And I, when we went there, I saw this bookshop, and it's it specializes in first editions and mostly signed copies. It was such a great surprise to find the Fulton R Stars in that shop. And it has now become a gem in my collection. Of course, now that I've grown a little older than intended audience for this novel, I have other books that that top this as my favorite. But it's still among my top ten favorite books. The story of the novel kind of centers around this book that I just I briefly mentioned in a quotation I gave. An Imperial Fiction is a fictional book written by a, another fictional author named Peter Van Houten. In this novel, it features a character called Anna with cancer, and then、so、I think that's and that's the reason Hazel loves it so much because it's it feels true to her. It is exactly her experience, but the. The book has a very literary ending, and this is the one metaphor I didn't get when I was reading it at the age of fourteen. Also, Anna is honest about all of it in a way no one else really is. Throughout the book, she refers to herself as the side effect, which is just totally correct. Cancer kids are essentially side effects of the relentless mutation that made the diversity of life on Earth possible. So as the story goes on, she gets sicker, the treatments and disease racing to kill her, and her mum falls in love with this Dutch tulip trader, Anna calls the Dutch tulip. Anna calls the Dutch tulip man. The Dutch tulip man has lots of money and very eccentric ideas about how to treat cancer. But Anna thinks this guy might be a conman and possibly not even Dutch. And then, just as the possibly Dutch guy and her mum are about to get married, and Anna is about to start this crazy new treatment regimen involving wheatgrass and low doses of arsenic, the book ends right in the middle of a. Like when I was reading this, I told my friends there was a misprint in this book because I thought. There's supposed to be the word sentence after that, but that is the metaphor that life ends right in the middle of a sentence. And Hazel says that is how the book ends, and she says that that is the reason she loved the book so much. But she is very keen on finding out what happens to other characters, such as such as Anna's mother, Anna's pet's hamster called Sisyphus. Because she thinks of herself as a grenade because of her cancer, that is the core issue of this novel, in my opinion. Because she thinks of herself as a grenade, she thinks that she will hurt people when she dies, which is why she is so keen to learn about what happens after the ending, after Anna dies, because she needs to know. That the people she leave behind 
will be fine with her death, that they will be able to carry on with their lives without her. There's a dinner scene in the novel that points this out. This is a dinner scene after Hazel meets Augustus in the support group, and her parents can apparently tell that she has a liking in him, and this is their exchange. You're being very teenagery today, Mom said. She seemed annoyed about it. Isn't this what you wanted, Mom? For me to be teenagery? Well, not necessary in this kind of teenagery, but of course your father and I are excited to see you become a young woman, making friends, going on dates. I'm not going on dates, I said. I don't want to go on dates with anyone. It's a terrible idea and a huge waste of time and... Honey, my mom said, what's wrong? I'm like... Like... I'm like a grenade, mom. I'm a grenade and at some point I'm going to blow up and I would like to minimize the casualties, okay? My dad tilted his head a little to the side, like a scolded puppy. I'm a grenade, I said again. I just want to stay away from people and read books and think and be with you guys. Because there's nothing I can do about hurting you. You're too invested. So just please let me do that, okay? I'm not depressed. I don't need to get out more. And I can't be a regular teenager because I'm a grenade. This is one of the more... Like, there are lots of painful scenes in this novel. But in the sense that it gets you think about life and death. But this is one where you just completely... I don't even know what's the word. Where you just so... You just feel so, so sorrowful for Hazel's condition that she thinks of herself in this way. It should not be the way anyone think about themselves. I don't know how to put this better, but this kind of connects to another important in the Anne Frank house. So Peter van Houten, the fictional author, he lives in Amsterdam after he finishes the novel. And Augustus and Hazel get a chance to fly to Amsterdam and meet him there. They go to the they visit Anne Frank house afterwards and this is what Hazel said about Anne Frank's father. As I read about each of the seven who died, I thought of Otto Frank not being a father anymore, left with a diary instead of a wife and two daughters. In a way, you can say that I wasn't very close to the concept of death. Of course, I knew it as a fact that people die, but I wasn't, I didn't really have the experience to fully understand what it's like going through that kind of experience. And so having gone through that, I think I understand this novel a little more. I now understand that Hazel gets it wrong. You're not stopping the child of your parents after their death. You will not stop being the grandchild of your grandparents after they die. You will not stop being the lover of your partner if they have if anything happens to them. I did not understand that, which is why I didn't understand this particular scene after Augustus passes away in the novel. Hazel is kind of hiding away in the bathroom and, and crying after Augustus after Augustus dies. And 
her dad comes in and say the whole thing. 80% survival rate and he's in the 20%? Bullshit. He was such a bright kid. It's bullshit. I hate it. But it was sure a privilege to love him, huh? I nodded into his shirt. Gives you an idea how I feel about you, he said. My old man. He always knew just what to say. Because you won't stop loving someone when they pass away, you won't. It's always a continuum. And that was why I didn't understand about the importance of the Anne Frank house scene. I just completely didn't understand why they had to go through that. And now I do. Which is another reason why I love rereading novels when I read them when I was younger. Because I have more experiences than when I was reading the novel at that age. And I'm bound to understand more. Or I will have different kind of insights into the novel. And because this novel touches on the issue of life and death, it is also... Existentialism is also a huge part of discussion in this novel. Hazel and Gosses has very different view about the meaning of life. Augustus is the kind of person who wants to lead an amazing life, an heroic life. And Hazel, on the other hand, as we have discussed, that she, because she thinks as she she thinks of herself as a kind of grenade. She just wants to lead a very simple life that could minimize the hurt that she will do to other people. When they first meet after support group, when the leader of the support group asked Augustus what his biggest fear was, what his biggest fear is, he said, he says, oblivion. And to this, Hazel responds with a genuinely very deep, deep philosophical thought. And I want to share it with you. I feel like I'm quoting this novel too much, but it's just such an amazing novel. And I hope this will prompt you to read it. There will come a time, I said, when all of us are dead. All of us. There will come a time when there are no human beings remaining to remember that anyone ever existed or that our species ever did anything. There will be no one left to remember Aristotle or Cleopatra, let alone you. Everything that we did and built and wrote and thought and discovered will be forgotten and all of this, I gestured encompassingly, will have been for naught. Maybe that time is coming soon and maybe it is millions of years away, but even if we survive the collapse of our sun, we will not survive forever. There was a time before organisms experienced consciousness, and there will be a time after. And if the inevitability of human oblivion worries you, I encourage you to ignore it. God knows that's what everyone else does. Of course I'm still processing this whole information. There, As I said, there are still a lot of things I don't understand about this novel, or have not yet fully comprehend the uh, philosophical theories or the philosophical thinking behind it because it is connected to the very existence of me as a person. 
because we all know that one day we are going to die. So that is a sad fact. But we have the choice of the in between between our birth and our death. What we are going to do with this time? We can be very pessimistic, like I know I'm going to die, so I'm just going to wait away my time until that time comes. But there will also be other people who actively seek out or who actively sought out meaning of life, who actively want to leave something behind, and that is how they interpreted the meaning of life: is to leave something behind, leave some kind of mark. After they die, and this is exactly how Augustus,、um, this is exactly the the notion that Augustus has has in mind. This is taken from、uh, the scene where they are dining in a restaurant in Amsterdam, and Augustus asks Hazel about her opinion on afterlife. No, I said, and then revised. Well, maybe I wouldn't go so far as no. You? Yes. He said, his voice full of confidence. Yes, absolutely, not like a heaven where you ride unicorns, play harps, and live in mansion made of clouds. But yes, I believe in something with a capital S. Always have. Really, I asked. I was surprised. I'd always associate belief in heaven with, frankly, a kind of intellectual disengagement. But Gus wasn't dumb. Yeah. He said quietly, "I believe in that line from *Imperial Affliction*: 'The risen sun too bright in her losing eyes.' That's God, I think, the rising sun, and the light is too bright, and her eyes are losing, but they aren't lost. I don't believe we return to hunt or comfort the living or anything, but I think something becomes of us. But you fear oblivion. Sure, I fear earthly oblivion." But I mean, not to sound like my parents, but I believe humans have souls, and I believe in a conversation of souls. The oblivion fear is something else—fear that I won't be able to give anything in exchange for my life. If you don't live a life in service of a greater good, you've got to at least die a death in service of a greater good, you know. And I fear that I won't get either a life or a death that means anything. I just shook my head. What? He asked, "Your obsession with, like, dying for something or leaving behind some great sign of your heroism or whatever, it's just weird. Everyone wants to lead an extraordinary life. Not everyone," I said, unable to disguise my annoyance. "Are you mad? It's just," I said, and then could have finished my sentence. "Just," I said again. Between us, flickered the candle. It's really mean of you to say that the only lives that matter are the ones that are live for something or die for something. That's a really mean thing to say to me. Hazel is very aware of the sickness, how the sickness affects her life, how that it has limited her to an extent that she will not be able to do something grand, that she. Is bound to live a simple life that will suit her to not hurt a lot of people with her death, and that's a complete contradiction to what Augustus believes in the meaning of life. And I think that is very 
interesting because you see th- that is the kind of um another major another core issue of this novel hazel is the embodiment of a simple life and augustus can be taken as the embodiment of wanting to have a grand life and when these two characters fall in love with each other their values also crash with each other i think that is why augustus has to die in this novel because then through the death of augustus hazel will hazel can come to realize that it will be a privilege to love someone like her she will not stop loving augustus when she dies and her life will carry on after the death of augustus and when the same thing happened to her her parents will have the ability to carry on and her friends as well and augustus on the other hand will have to come into compromise or realize the fact that he will never be able to lead this kind of heroic life that he wants he will have to settle down to having small impacts on other people and these kind of little joys that is not less grand than a heroic life augustus holds a pre-funeral before he dies and then he invites hazel to give an eulogy for him and this is what hazel says I can't talk about our love story, so I will talk about math. I am not a mathematician, but I know this. There are infinite numbers between 0 and 1. There's point 0.1 and point 0.12 and point 0.112 and an infinite collection of others. Of course, there is a bigger infinite set of numbers between 0 and 2, or between 0 and a million. Some infinities are bigger than other infinities. A writer we used to like taught us that. There are days, many of them, when I resent the size of my unbounded set. I want more numbers than I'm likely to get. And God, I want more numbers for Augustus Waters than he got. But Gus, my love, I cannot tell you how thankful I am for our little infinity. I wouldn't trade it for the world. You gave me a forever within the number days, and I am grateful. And so is this kind of idea of infinity within a number of days that marks the uh, core, like kind of marks the resolution of the core issue of this novel. I cannot explain it. I feel like I'm not explaining this very well, but I think these little infinities are the are what we get as normal people like we have our memories with our loved ones we have memories of the good days we have memories where we go out with full confidence and did and accomplished something very good but not grand as saving the world from the climate crisis or not as grand as finding a new medicine to cure cancer or not as grand as winning the football world cup we as everyday people will have to compromise to cherish these kind of infinities because if we don't then we'd be miserable we'd be looking at all those amazing people doing amazing things and think why can't i be like that 
But if we change our mind into appreciating these kind of hygge, I think it's a Danish word for like little joys and life. If we change our minds to appreciate that, that would be that would be a more positive life attitude, I'd say. And to conclude this episode, I want to use a quote that connects to this idea in the novel, and I'll leave you to ponder on that. You know what, believe. I remember in college I was taking this math class, this really great math class taught by this tiny old woman. She was talking about fast Fourier transforms, and she stopped mid-sentence and said, "Sometimes it seems the universe wants to be noticed." That's what I believe. I believe the universe wants to be noticed. I think the universe is improbably biased towards consciousness. That it rewards intelligence in part because the universe enjoys its elegance being observed, and who am I, living in the middle of history, to tell the universe that it, or my observation of it, is temporary? Thank you for tuning in today's episode. If you want to know more about the book that I talked about, follow me on Instagram at. Bookish dot memories. All letters are lowercases. Now put on your reading glasses. Maybe make yourself a nice mug of tea, and enjoy your next good read.